You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Greetings. Uh, I'm Jim Finley. And I'm Kirsten Oates. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Welcome, everyone, to Turning to the Mystics. In this season, we are turning to St. Teresa of Avila, and Jim is leading us in Lexio using her book, The Interior Castle. As Jim and I reflected on this season, we thought it would be helpful to include some more question and response sessions to support the Lexio practice. Currently, we are two mansions in, and we thought this would be a good time to reflect on some key themes and teachings. So welcome, Jim. Very good, yes. And I'll, I'd like to add to that by saying that, you know, these, these reflections that I'm sharing with you in these series of podcasts, uh, these, I've been giving these talks on uh, silent weekend contemplative retreats for the past 30 years, really. These are silent retreats. At the end of each conference, it would be on Teresa or Eckhart or somebody. And um, uh, there's questions, People ask questions, and they're deeply personal questions. But over the years, certain fundamental questions get asked over and over and over again, because these mystical teachings raise questions relative to our customary ways of understanding things, and how do I relate to this? How do I relate to that? How can I benefit from this? So that's the purpose of the session here, is to kind of hopefully tap into some of these very broad-based questions to make these um, teachings more accessible or more helpful to you. So that's kind of the logic of this time here together with Kirsten, and uh, hopefully it'll, you'll find it helpful. Thanks, Jim. I'll kick us off with our first question. What you've said is unique about the interior castle is that it lays out a path for us, a path of growth, of transformation, starting at the beginning, and a lot of mystics don't start right at the beginning, but I, I wondered if you'd just describe, it's a, it's a path, what is the path? A path to what? A path of what? Um, in, how yeah. would you describe it? I, I put it this way. Let, let's say that, that, that what she's doing, and every mystic does this, they start out with a kind of a poetic metaphor that bears witness to what faith proclaims as an understanding of reality is revealed through our faith. And so for her, she, she starts out with a kind of a poetic understanding of the revelation that we're created by God in the image and likeness of God, and an ongoing perpetual, like our God-given, godly identity. And so when she uses the word soul, she's referring to that identity. Our, our, our identity is this kind of the, the stature of uh, the spiritual foundations of our deepest identity given to us by God as a person. And that's the soul. And then she says, I'm going to take you then on a kind of guided tour through your own soul, okay? uh, knowing that, that God, who's the creator of the soul, all about you, the universe cannot contain, is actually within you in the innermost center of your soul. And so I'm going to be guiding you through your own soul into that intimate center where God's waiting for you there to grant you this union. And she says, then you might ask me, well, how can you guide me through my own soul since I am my soul? And she says, this is where the idea of mansions come in or dwelling places. She said, understand that there's different ways of understanding what it means to be in a place. So right now, you and I, Kirsten, we're talking, each of us is in the place we're in as we talk. And right now, everyone listening to it is in the place that they're listening to this. But the extent to which each of us is interiorly aware of this subject matter in a heartfelt way would vary greatly from person to person. So the mansions then refer to the degrees to which or the extent to which we're aware of and one with uh, uh, God creating us, 
God creating our soul in God's image and likeness, dwelling in our soul and calling us into ever deeper union with himself, within ourself, within our soul. And so we're going to start out at the very beginning with the very first awkward, first glimmers of spiritual consciousness. Like how the, the beginnings of religious conversion, where for the first time God becomes real to you, where God's relationship with you becomes intimately significant to you. And she starts there. The, how do we understand the status of the beginner? They say begin people in the first mansion, they pray, they do pray, but they don't pray well and they don't pray often. But it's a gift to be there. Because there's some people, she says, don't even know they have a soul. They're so externalized. So that's the gist of it. That's so so she starts right at the very beginning, helping us understand the gift and the 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 the, the challenges of being a spiritual beginner as we first find our way into our own mm -hmm. soul. So in, be in beginner language, I might say that uh, the path is a is a path of growing awareness of God within me. Yeah, let me let me put it personally, like as mm -hmm. a prayer, because she puts this in terms of prayer. I want to say it like a prayer. Uh, Lord God, I'm so grateful for this new sense of. Uh, of this desire to be closer to you. I've heard about you all my life through my faith. I listened to it, listened to it. But I don't think I've ever heard that before in a personal way that I would actually like you to help me to experience your oneness with me in my life. But I find it confusing, seriously. I don't know exactly how to proceed here. I, I'm a man, I'm just a there's all kinds of distractions. There's just a lot of things are tugging at me in my daily life. I'm a lot of I'm in the middle of a lot of challenging things. So I, I need some help here in getting my bearings and how to realistically kind of get my balance in a way where I'm kind of aligned up with this capacity to let you help me stabilize in your presence in my life. See, that would be the prayer mm -hmm, of the first mansion. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Thank you. Um, so just starting in that first mansion, uh, Teresa talks about the fact that we have a soul and that without knowing our soul, we do not know, know ourselves. She says that we're exiled from our soul. Um, God is present there, but we cannot experience God. And so I'm just wondering, um, I know when I've attended church, there hasn't been a lot of great teaching on having a soul and what that actually means. And then, and then in the <laughs> culture, I think this idea of a soul has been kind of romanticized, you know, a soul mate, a, a soul kind of meaning just kind of a, an inner goodness or, or something. Soul, a person's very soulful. Soulful, uh, yeah. 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 Why, why, why is it that we don't know we have well, here, Here's what I think. It, well, this, this has to do with modernity, and it has to do with secularization of consciousness. I think when we tend to think of ourselves, when I say myself, I tend to think in my cultural setting, I, th I, th I understand that psychologically. So, so my understanding is how do I experience myself you know, as a, as a man, being the age that I'm in, the conditions that I'm in, and the circumstances that I'm in. What's my sense of my, my physical health or lack thereof? My emotional inner peace or lack thereof? My intimacy needs or lack thereof? I'm on a meaningful career path that it meets my expectations or more or lack thereof. This I call this myself. So if I would ask you, how's it going? You'd tell me about that, see? You'd let me know and I'd listen and we'd share stories. Let me tell you about myself, see? So, this, so we're, the soul has to do more with, uh, with what, what, what is the interiority of ourselves that gives meaning to all of that. See? That is, if I'm nothing more than the sum total of conditioned states, of constantly fluctuating circumstances, carrying me through time until I die. Is that it? Is that it? But doesn't my faith tell me I am that, but I'm not just that? 
I'm also a spiritual being uh, created by God in the image and likeness of God with an infinite destiny. And the God who gives me that destiny is inside of me, sustaining me. And so this is experiential self-knowledge. See, how can I go past and transcend psychological modes of self in order into spiritual dimensions of myself? And I think that's why, where she says some people don't even know they have a soul. They're so externalized. And the way centrifugal force of events spins them out into their circumstances, where they're just trying to get through another day or their attainments and their losses and their gains and so on. They're tempted to think they're nothing but that. And insofar as I'm nothing but that, that's the sense I don't know I have a soul. But then I, I fall in love or uh, I have a child or I lose love or I nearly die or I, I'm, I'm out alone in the middle of a thunderstorm or a poem and all of a sudden the richness of interiority of myself dawns on me. See? And having tasted it, I know it's there and I sense that's what's missing. See, That's really... and I. I understand it along those lines. That's so helpful. Teresa says that our intellects cannot grasp the soul. And in another section, she says that these inner teachings are so obscure to the mind. Um, and again, when I reflect on attending church, uh, I feel like a lot of the sermon, the sermons are really targeted at the mind and um, yes. developing the intellectual understanding of theology or the stories uh, in Scripture? I would say this. I want to say first about sermons or homily, ideally speaking. As I think what they, at least hopefully, they're, they're really based on Scripture. And since they're based on Scripture, they're based on the Word of God. And the Word of God is about this. The Word of God is about this. Lord, uh, Master, you know, what is the greatest commandment? Uh, To love the Lord, God, with your whole mind. Everything is about it. So the homily, ideally, draws the truth of Scripture, which is about this, but it tends to apply it to the pastoral concrete realities of our situation, our struggles, our attainments, an aspiring person that we met, and let's get renewed again and go home with more of a sense of it. What we don't tend to hear is, is a word-bearing witness to how intimate that is. Like a kind of an intimate, hidden resonance of something that from time to time we get echoes of. And the homily rarely, and this makes this Lexio, this is Teresa then, see? the homily then says, the homilist rarely says, let's look at that. See? Let's, let's look at that. What, what is it that I obscurely sense matters very, very much in the presence of the situation, but I don't know what to make of it in the sense in which all my attempts to conceptually define it fall short of what it is. Paradigmatic consciousness, it's not, it's not my conclusions about myself in reflective empirical consciousness. Like a, a, I, it's really the intimate immediacy of the undefined and undefinable obscurely sensed, but I'm not reducible to the sum total of all my definitions about myself, nor anyone else's definitions about me. And how do I get to that? And that's what what I think she means, we can't grasp our own Mm -hmm. soul. Do you have advice for us uh, in terms of how we handle our intellects or our our minds that uh, try to grasp and understand and when we're on this path? Yeah, I do. Um, I mean, my sense is this, is that certainly our intellect, the way we usually think of our intellect, our conceptual mind, science, and thoughts and ideas, and uh, it's important. You know, it's, it's holy, it's created by God. We need it to function and get through our day. And how do I conceptually understand the aspects of my life in a realistic and helpful way? All that's important. All that's important. That's where reflection and reading, or if I'm having difficulties, I can work those through. All that's important. But one one way to get at it would be, I'll use an example of it. 
uh, example, I, I'll use the example for married love. Yes. Um, as a sixth example, we used, I think we used it before in the Merton's section. It's that notice that when we don't know someone very well, how easy it is to express our opinions about that person. And that, that we could say that's what we know about them. Let me tell you about so-and-so, my boss or my pastor or a politician, anybody. But when we've loved someone very, very deeply for a long, long time, and someone would ask us, who do you know the beloved to be? We don't know what to say. And we also know that anything we would say wouldn't be what they, we know because it's not reducible to words. And our heart breaks when we try, which is the sincerity of the self-disclosure to the beloved. That's it. So uh, uh, to paraphrase Meister Eckhart, when we get to Meister Eckhart, is to find that act, to find that person, to find that event, which when you give yourself over to it with your whole heart, it unravels your petty preoccupation with your self-absorbed self and strangely brings you home to yourself. The long, slow walk to no place in particular, the quiet hour at day's end, sitting with a poet or prayer or helping people. And these, these are intimations or contact points with a kind of obscure, intimate knowing that qualitatively goes beyond conclusions and definitions and so on. So I, I, would, I, would, I would put it that way. It's a personal mm -hmm. thing. And I find as I read uh, someone like Teresa, uh, she, she had that experience and I can feel the resonance of it and it feels uh, like a sense of beauty, a sense of joy, a sense of wonder. Um, I can feel that in her words, and and is that is that a way we might experience yeah, it? So, uh, yeah. And by the way, this is real important in in uh, how the lineage is handed on this mystical lineage. Shunru Suzuki, the Soto Zen contemporary Soto Zen master, um, he he says in these traditions, he's speaking of Zen, but in mystical Catholicism, the Kabbalah, these traditions, deep deep yoga, all these traditions. He said, the primary task of the teacher is to give witness to the seeker that what the seeker seeks is real. That is, you know your heart has not deceived you, that you intuit you're sitting in the presence of someone with whom it's been realized. It's what Richard Rohr means by, in Hinduism, the ashram is empty when the realized yogi dies and it waits for the next realized yogi. In other words, when we read Teresa, I think it, it's very clear she's not saying this on hearsay. This is an opinion. This is a, you get the feeling that she is what she says. See? And so the clarity or the, the intimate sincerity with which she's trying to help us, we know that she's trying to help us experience what she knows is true because she's experienced it and she lives by it. And she's trying to help us experience and live by it. And that's the mm -hmm. teacher. That yes, that's really helpful. It's like it's like evidence. It's a certain kind of yes. evidence of the presence incarnate mm -hmm. in the person who's been metamorphosized in it beyond the intellect and, and beyond the mind. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, because, yeah, because you can't. That you're describing. That's right, and that's why I think contemplative spiritual direction, where you say you're sitting in, with someone who's who's ripened or well seasoned in this. Spirit, contemplative spiritual direction then is two people sitting together sharing what neither one can explain. Mm. <laughs> but they're called to shed light on the unexplainable yes. that's transforming us into itself. But it takes one to know one. And so you look for somebody who's more well seasoned in this because you realize it's obscure and you're subject to self-deception. And if we're fortunate enough to find such a living person, that's a gift. But the deathless beauty of the of the mystic lives timelessly, as she wrote so soulfully, that she is somehow intimately present in everything she says, and so we can meet her helping mm -hmm. us. Like this. and yeah. you you uh, shared. I think you've shared it in this podcast, but um, I know you've shared with me that uh, Thomas Merton, who we we looked we turned to in season one, was very much impacted 
by Teresa and carries forward her lineage in his contemplative uh, writing and teaching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. The rule of St. Benedict that we followed at the monastery was written in the 5th century. And Benedict, in the Western Church in Italy, when he wrote the rule, was inspired by the desert fathers and desert mothers in Egypt. He was inspired by these hermits, these awakened, spiritually awakened beings. And then down through history, there's a lineage of awakened hearts of mystics and saints down through the ages. There was a former Bernard of Clairvaux in the 11th century, the primacy of love. And so Merton wasn't just well steeped in these lineages. He lived in the cloistered silence of a monastery that radicalized a commitment to, to live mm. by it. And he's one of these people, I think, who crossed over into mm-hmm. God. That is, he's one of these people. And um, I, I, I think Mer- Thomas Merton says in the Asian Journal, he said, once in a while, uh, someone crosses over into God. And someone and breaks through into God. Someone recognizes that person's breakthrough. And they sit with that person. And there's formed there in that place a community that no one can ever destroy. And that's, that's the contemplative church. It's a deathless community of being in the presence of someone in whose presence you're not alone. And the person's trying to help you understand what's happening mm-hmm. to you. And uh, now it's your turn. See, this is your turn now to yield to mm-hmm. this. And so Merton bears witness that it's, it's always contemporary. It's timeless and ageless. And it always... Uh, it's a trans-temporal, trans-historical expression in history of our, of infinite, of the deathless nature of love. We might mm-hmm. say. Thanks, Jim. I'm going to read a quote uh, from Mansion One, Chapter Two, where Teresa says, "Always visualize your soul as vast, spacious, and plentiful. The amplitude is impossible to exaggerate. The soul's capacity far transcends our imagining." The sun at the center of this place radiates to every part. And I wondered, Jim, when I read that, I wondered, is it helpful for us as we journey with Teresa to imagine the soul in these ways she describes it, like as a crystal, um, in this way she describes it here, vast, spacious, uh, plentiful. The sun at the center of this place radiates to every part. Is that a, a practice that would be helpful to us? Let's say this. This is one way I think where I think it is helpful. Actually, is let's say, and she says this in the same chapter. I think she says, you know, if if we think of heaven as the word we use where God lives, our Father who art in heaven, will be that name. If heaven is where God lives, and if God is living inside of your soul. Your soul is God's mm. heaven. So your soul is heaven in miniature. Mm. <laughs> That's lovely. Yeah. And, but furthermore, although the soul is a soul in miniature in which it's imaginable, that it become, we can imagine even though it pales compared to the boundaryless expanse of the celestial realm, which is God. Mm-hmm. This earthly embodiment of God's heaven, which is my own soul, is 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 vast beyond what I can compare. Mm. It's certainly infinitely bigger than my ego, mm. and in the layered interiority and poverty of my ego, I'm a riddle to myself. See, I can't exhaust in a clear, objective manner the layered richness and realities of ego consciousness, of reflection, of memory, of the will, of sensation of the body, we're, we're kind of, even that is just endlessly, that's why the, the psychology and medicine will never exhaust mm-hmm. itself, because the ego itself is in some way inexhaustible in these measures. So this then is qualitatively richer than that. See? And, 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 and so in some sense then, she gets into all this in the fourth mansion, God is, it isn't the soul, is God's heaven in miniature. The soul is God's heaven in all truth. There's a certain point, there's no distinction between heaven, and so your soul is as boundaryless. See? It's the boundaryless presence of 
God, of which we call heaven. And so these are very, and so it's very helpful then to see it as poetry, because poetry is evocative, and it helps break open conceptual structures and realize we're. It's like falling. It's like being in love with someone or something you love very much. Just when you thought you had a kind of pretty definitive hold on it. You lean a little deeper, and here is much more than you imagined. See? And then you get used to that, and you're going around that is more than it's imagined. See? And then you begin to sense there's no end to it. See? There's no end to the mystery you're leaning into. And that's, that's how I think this kind of imagery is very helpful. It gives us, it's a way, it gives us a way to talk about what's so hard to talk about because we're honoring the kind of dynamic expansiveness of it and realizing that we're talking about the ultimacy of who we are. See, that's what makes so kind of, uh, you know, that we're the subject matter of the inquiry. <laughs> no, yeah. really, that's really, the, that's the really, <laughs> it's, 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 yeah, it's, trans, it's a transpersonal personal it's uh, see the deepest question is not why is there something rather than nothing why is there someone rather than yes. no one and i'm that someone yeah. see and uh, uh can, I, can i join god in knowing who god knows and calls me mm -hmm. to be this is this is teresa I think this, that was uh, a really helpful explanation and i i think then what i'm realizing is that quote worked for me in the way you described like it felt expansive beyond my my own sense of something and um, for for people listening, that, that might be a different quote, but that we might be looking for in Teresa's words those places where we get drawn to something deeper, to something more expansive, and sit with those pieces. Um, yeah, let me share something that's coming to me now. We're kind of because she's going to be talking later how this touches our life this way. You know, Dan Berrigan in the '60s was on the FBI most wanted list because he was probably blood on draft cards and he went to, he was on the search and put him in prison. He was against the nuclear war, against the Vietnam War and he was that and he came to visit Merton and Merton was one of these people who was also involved in the, the, the transformation of et cetera. And an interesting thing about Dan Walsh, Dan Walsh, Dan Berrigan, um, uh, is that um, every Sunday he would go to a cancer hospital and mop the floors of the cancer hospital. He did that every Sunday. And then if we say, well, and he was a poet. And he would say, well, why would Dan Berrigan mop the floors of a cancer hospital? And that's a, a glimpse into the expansive nature of the mm. soul. You know what I mean? Just certain people mm -hmm. are called to do certain things with a certain kind of uh, imperative or certain, like they're obeying something mm -hmm. or they're honoring something, you know, obediential fidelity to something. And so we see mirrored in them a grandeur that's actually in, see, so what? what's, what's this asking out of me? See, what, what's love asking out of me, and that's a soulful. So Teresa's saying, let's let's look very, very closely at this, you know, and uh, what it's, in, the intimacy of it all. For so us we might so. know what it's asking out of us individually. Yeah, day, yeah. in the con, yeah, in, in the situation, I'm in a situation, you're in a situation. Uh, so when Thomas Merton says, uh, life's 99% Mickey Mouse, it won't help to relocate because <laughs> Mickey Mouse will be waiting for you at the airport to show you to your new apartment. He said the, the key to life is finding the kernel of pure truth in every situation and live mm. by it. So I'm in a situation, life's complicated, it's hard being a human being, but what is the kernel of pure truth See, that's hidden right in the middle of my situation? And how can I through silence or humility or prayer, the pearl of great price, See, how can I find that? And Teresa's about that, I think. He says one way of saying it. Turning to the mystics will continue in a moment. She talks about uh, prayer being the language of the soul, and, and she gives guidance uh, around what that kind of prayer looks like. So in one 
place she talks about um, needing to be very aware of who we're talking to when we pray. Uh, she says, we're not, we're not praying to a servant, but the beloved. Um, in another place, she talks about it being important to acknowledge our gratitude for God and solicit God's mercy. I wonder if you have any advice for us as we, we pray the language of the soul. Yes. Uh, I echo what we said when we looked at this first mansion. I want to echo. She just says these, he has these beautiful one liners. <laughs> you, know, you just sit with, really, you just sit with a kind of pragmatic depth mm-hmm. to her in one sentence. She has that gift of articulating these things. So she says, let's say we go to prayer. We're following Teresa. She's our guide. And we're going to, and so in the Lexio, we open the scriptures or open to read that God talks to us. Like God is revealed to us in, in the beauty or truth of these words, like this. And then God says, uh, who's saying these words to us right while we sit there in prayer, reading the scriptures, God says to us, now it's your turn, what do you think? <laughs> Where are you at with this? I, I want to know, seriously. So she says, and so when you begin to talk to God, she says, sister, you should realize who you're talking to. You're talking to the person who is perpetually creating the whole universe. You're talking to the one who's giving you your next breath, who's giving you your next heartbeat, the one who knows you through and through and through and through and through and through and through, for love's sake alone. And uh, and God waiting to hear you talk to God. You should be aware. And no, she says, and she has this imagery. I think it's in uh, in the life. I think it's where she says, she says, what you do is you lean in real close and imagine you're whispering in God's ear. And you can feel God's hand on your shoulder and God's infinitely interested in everything you mm. say. Because I created the whole universe for you because I'm in love mm. with you. I created you to have someone to give myself to like this, and that's who you're talking to, the infinite beloved, who's letting you know that you're God's beloved. And so she's suggesting, Merton says, with God a little sincerity goes a long, long way. And it's the, it's the unguarded vulnerability of that kind of piety, the kind of devotional sincerity, where we lean deeply he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. The love we share as we tarry there, no other has ever known. Mm. See? And uh, we walk by that. It's like people who love each other very much. They're not playing games. You know, they're not, they're not composing clever things to say. There's a kind of a mutual vulnerability of utter sincerity mm-hmm. that itself conveys the words of love they're longing to hear. And that's a sacrament or echo of what's God's waiting to hear from us, because it echoes in everything God says. I think it's like that. Mm. It? It's a lovely way to look at it. It's very... Yes, it's certainly like when you were describing um, the, who, you know, who God is, when she says, know who you're talking to, and you gave that description, it, it almost silences you to, to not yeah. know what to say, but well, yeah, and... Uh, but then how to speak into that, how to learn to speak into that. Exactly. Another image I'm coming to, we mentioned this in the Merton Reflections, I think. When I was with Thomas Merton in direction, I worked at the pig barn. And so when I would always go in, he'd always start by asking me, how's it going? And uh, so I told him, I said, well, we're painting the pig barn. And uh, he said, oh, what color? And I said, blue. And then he said, in honor of our blessed mother, because blue's the honor tradition for Mary. And I laughed, and I said, no, it's the only color they had. They gave me a five-gallon can of paint and a lot of brushes. You know, paint the, go out and paint the damn pig barn. And he caught my laughter. He said, do you know what your problem is? He said, you're suspicious. Mm-hmm. That a monk would actually want to paint the pig barn blue in honor of our Blessed Mother as the ancient way. Mm-hmm. See? But it's not naive, you know, it's concretized in radical commitment and truth and so on. So what are we willing to become disarmingly vulnerable mm. about? And we pray for out of that, you know, that's mm. the, the word. Yeah. Mm. Wow, that's really helpful. So bu- building on that discussion about prayer, 
uh, Jim, Teresa talks about um, the three hinges of the door that, that take us from one mansion to another. And she describes prayer, humility, and self-knowledge. So we just talked about prayer. Um, how about hum- humility? What, what does she mean when she talks about the need for humility? Uh, let's say, let's say um, that you, you, so prayer then is the, the, is the intimacy of the sincerity of the engagement. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's that actual act of the rendezvous itself is, is the prayer. Let's call it, that's the prayer. Okay. The, the, the humility, and I'll say it is a prayer. I'll, I'll put words to it, you know. See, the prayer is, you know, even as I begin to approach you, I'm, I want to acknowledge I don't know how to approach you. And even though you're telling me here that you're already one with me, I want to acknowledge I'm, I have mixed feelings about it. In a way, I believe you, but I don't. I don't. And as a matter of fact, I'm not even sure I know what it means to say something like that. And not only that, I'm having a hard time stabilizing in this obscure self, this self-acknowledgement, knowing it's the place at which the union I'm looking for occurs. Mm-hmm. And so I'm never humiliated by you, but I'm endlessly humbled by you because you give yourself to me in my inability to comprehend mm-hmm. Because there's my ego again, trying to figure out how to comprehend it under the condition under which to proceed. Mm. But what if I'm proceeding into the incomprehensible, this incomprehensibly giving itself to me and my acknowledgement that I don't comprehend it? See? Yeah, does that make sense uh, in a way? It it's does. A, it's a state of one. It's a state of one, and that doesn't mean at a secondary level there isn't a language that articulates mm-hmm. it, which is the teaching of the mystic. Mm-hmm. Because Teresa has a certain clarity about her. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. She can focus mm-hmm. it into a concrete example that rings true. And so there is a language for this. And, uh, and so that would be the humility. See, the humility would be the falling away of um, uh, the posing and posturing that imagines the condition for proceeding is knowing how to proceed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because it's like you have, you found me when I was so lost I couldn't even find myself. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've, through your grace I've been brought right up to this very moment. I couldn't have planned it if mm-hmm. I tried. See? And um, and I think that those would be intimations of humility. That's beautiful. I, I, I'm going to sit with that one for a while. I think I think that's so helpful to hear it said that way and, and then and see then that is self-knowledge mm. then, see that is self-knowledge it's a trans subjective self-knowledge where merton says to to understand is it, to know is to know that you're known see and the issue isn't how well do i know you the issue is how infinitely do you know me and how are you unexplainably revealing yourself to me? In my acknowledgement, I don't know how to proceed. And so there's a paradoxical self-knowledge. It's a kind of a poetic voice in a way, too. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's a kind of a... That's why when we try to look at it on purpose, it goes yeah. away. See, the moment we that's try to funny. grasp it so we can have it, we fall, we fall out of the, um, the richness. But if we stay in sustained sincerity of the prayer, in the sustained sincerity of the prayer, it carries us along. And, sustain. and that door then is the door in which the presence mansion we're living, we kind of serendipitously fall to into a richer mm-hmm. level. See? Like the accumulative effect of that humility and vulnerability reaches a certain crescendo mm-hmm. in which the door flies open and we fall into a qualitatively richer state of this union cause. Mm-hmm. I'm just noticing um, that you've used the word vulnerability a few times and <clears throat> that might not be a word Teresa would have used but um, but but it seems important well, to what you're saying. Yeah, I, I would say it, it does in this when you read Teresa, mm-hmm. one of the refrains to her 
and she'll say, you know, I'm cont- I don't know how to figure to say this, or um, I, I've been I've been too busy to write the interior castle for a while, and I'm too busy to even look back and see where I left mm-hmm. off, mm-hmm. or my head is spinning, mm-hmm. and I don't know what to do, or for long periods of time, you know, I went about lost in this thing like you know she's very self-disclosing yes, yes about about the struggle so we know we're more like her than we, we realize because she's letting us know she's more like us than we mm. realized see? and uh, we kind of meet each other on this common ground yeah like this, she so. she role models the vulnerability and the self-disclosure she does. yeah but then but, but then she would assure us like say we were seeing her in spiritual direction she would say yes it is true you know, you're being very vulnerable about this, and I can acknowledge you need to be careful, and it's, it's hard. But I think it's also true, and she would say, and this is what we're talking about, it's ultimately irrelevant with respect to the love that's taking you to itself, knowing that humble vulnerability is the condition in which the taking occurs. And so let's kind of lean in. It's like that, mm-hmm. I think. You know, has that feeling to it. Yeah. And she she really, I found a lot of encouragement from her for um, staying humble and the the um, reflecting on our limitations in relation to God. And th- these are tools kind of for, for this path. It, as a matter of fact, when she's listing the faults of beginners, we'll see John the Cross does this too. She says, a characteristic of first mentioned people, one is we get discouraged because other people seem to be more holy than we are. <laughs> Two, we get discouraged because we're not as holy as we want to mm-hmm. be. Or we get discouraged because we fell again in some frailty. And we still haven't gotten the past, the thing we have to get past. And she says these are the still ego-based ways mm-hmm. that are revealing us to ourselves. But if we just get vulnerable and acknowledge these patterns, because this is how God, this is the stuff God works yeah. with. This is how God works with. So she's always calling us forward to a certain kind of truthfulness, mm-hmm. like heartfelt truthfulness about ourselves. And this, she says, you know, like, let's start yeah, there. Yeah. Well, that's beautiful because it doesn't matter what's happening, it's all part of it. You know, what, what, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. We can we can be vulnerable that's, that's really about, the, about every every piece that's happening. That's it. We're doing it then. That's right. Yeah. Because it, see, from, because from the very first moment, the first uh, uh, shimmer of this occurred, where we where we were still lost in these patterns, reptiles mm-hmm. like caught up in mm-hmm. all of them. Notice how God found you and touched you and accessed you there. See. Mm-hmm. right in the middle of this kind of lost, fragmented state. She said, surely this is something in w- which we can place our confidence, mm. that God who's begun this work in us will bring it to completion. Mm-hmm. I wanted to read the, the, the quote. Um, this is Mansion 1, uh, Chapter 1, page 40, where she says, During the course of a month, these souls might pray a few times, but their minds are, f- are full of a thousand things they are still attached to. Where their treasure lies, says Christ, there also goes their heart. Every once in a while, though, they break free from these things and realize that they are not going the right way to get to the castle's front door. At last they arrive. They enter the first lower rooms. But so many reptiles have slipped in with them that they cannot even see the beauty of the castle or find solace in it. Still, they have done very well to have gotten in at all. And yeah. uh, I did want to ask you about the reptiles. What What do you think she's referring to there? And yes, uh, you know, um, uh, let's, say, let's say it's a real gift to be interiorly inclined to want to turn to the mystics like this. That's, not everyone is so inclined, and, and it's also a gift to um, have the opportunity to kind of get a little bit of help finding our way into what the mystics are saying. Because if we can get, get a sense of what they're saying, the constancy of everything they say, with, with practice we need to be very humble and very patient. Because we're not used to thinking like this, which is the mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. We're trying to be led into a new way to 
look at things, understand things, what grace and so on. So we started with Merton because he's also subtle. You know, he's not lightweight. It's not, you can't skim read Thomas Merton. But the point is he's contemporary. He's very existential. The examples that he uses, we relate to like the, the spirit of the age. So what happens then when we're not turning to a mystic, this is the 16th mm. century in Spain. So her repertoire of, of, of cultural references, the images that come to her, the very idea of a castle. She was a castle because she looked out and saw them across, you ever been to Europe, you ever been these, these castles, mm -hmm. you see these castles. Yes. And it says a castle, but uh, it, it, you know, we don't see a lot of castles here. <laughs> yeah. you know, not, so it wouldn't, that wouldn't necessarily be our, so for Merton he doesn't use, he says the true mm. self, he uses like that. So then we have to translate, then we're getting, we're learning how to, like speaking more than one language, we can also learn to speak in the language of this ancient wisdom in this other epoch and expand our skill set of, uh, and just appreciating that. So the reptiles then, is, is, it's a metaphor for the habits of the mind and heart that compromise what we're searching for. And we learn them out in the ways of the world before we even knew we had a soul. Mm. See, they're in, we, they're, sometimes they're internalized patterns mm -hmm. formed in trauma and abandonment. You know? Sometimes they're, 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 they're patterns of thought that, that kind of got the better of us on the momentum to reach certain goals to the degree it got out of mm -hmm. hand. And we kind of lost who we were in the process, you know, or through all these patterns. So we're, we're kind of interiorly bonded to these self-compromising principles mm. that hinder this deepening, simple vulnerability to this love that loves us so and sustains us in the midst of all these mm -hmm. things. And I think that's what she means by reptiles. Mm -hmm. I love I love the visual that they slip in with us yeah. these these yeah, habits yeah, yeah. And patterns of our mind and heart that that distract yeah. us. And, the, and we do we carry yeah, yeah like Thich Nhat Han, you know the Buddhists, you know hello habit energies. Ah. We, we we befriend these habits yeah. and understand where they come from, accept them when we work mm -hmm. with them. And then we'll see in the second mansion, then we'll, we'll see that it goes deeper. Mm -hmm. We weren't careless. We're traumatically bonded to the mm -hmm. reptiles. Their survival strategies, mm. you know, and it's very scary to face them, to understand them, and find a deeper love that gives us the courage to let go of them. Mm. And so she said, it gets more ch challenging because you realize the depth of the dilemma, but you're actually in a much better position mm -hmm. because you're more open to depending on God's love and God's mercy to guide you and liberate you, and so on. Mm -hmm. And Jim, would they, would they also, when you were talking earlier about the ego consciousness, is it um, when she talks about the reptiles, are they um, parts of those ways that we describe ourselves as you as you started off? Are they, you know, I'm, I'm, this is my career, I'm this person, I'm this in the world? Or? Uh, I would say, let's say, this, let's say there's levels of looking at it. The most blatant is sin. And sin here would be, we might say, are the ways that we've we've given into and out of our own brokenness, given into intentional patterns of engaging and treating ourselves and other people and all living things in disrespectful, hurtful oh, okay. ways, including ourselves. Say, mm -hmm. including ourselves, we're sinful towards yeah. ourselves. We fall into these patterns. We abuse mm -hmm. ourselves. We abandon ourselves. We neglect mm -hmm. ourselves. You know, we launch self-attacks on ourselves. Yeah. We sell ourselves short. You know, we're, we're not, sometimes we're not, we're not a safe person to be with sometimes because of the internalized traumatized self that keeps acting out these patterns like that. And then we tend to treat others the way we treat ourselves because we're treating ourselves the way we, we learned to treat ourselves by the people who treated us that way and we internalized it. And so we're trying to tease out these patterns with clarity and courage and compassion and you know, do our inner mm -hmm. work. This is reminding me like how you that. you uh, teach that the, the measure of our growth on this path is love. And, and so we're always asking, where, where am I blocking love? Where am I not uh, able to be loving? Uh, and not in a 
way to condemn ourselves, but just to notice and to invite God's presence into it. That's right. So that's right. So all things considered, what's the most loving thing I can do right now for myself, this person, this family, this animal, Mm -hmm. this plant, the world, all things considered. Then when I... In asking that question, it reveals to me how unloving sometimes I tend yeah. to be. Mm-hmm. Then what's the most loving thing I can do to be loving towards myself and my infidelity mm-hmm. to be loving towards myself, which is the mercy of God. Yeah. How, how can I then um, see mercy upon mercy within mm-hmm. mercy, which is the good news. I mean, it's the gospel. So. Thank you. Beyond the reptile, she also talks about the spirit of spirit of evil that uses nasty tricks to keep us from our souls. What's what's a yeah. 16th century Spanish mystic referring to with that? Uh, uh, yeah, I think in AA, I think they talk about addiction. I think it's powerful, cunning, and clever. I always forget. I think that's what it is. That the addiction is powerful, cunning, and clever. It surreptitiously waits in the wings, mm. see? and just when you think you're past it, it waits for just the moment to come out and it restake its claim on you one more time. And before you know it, you slipped and mm-hmm. fell. Then you get discouraged, so discouraged you don't even want to try mm. anymore. And so evil then is is the is the naivete, one where we underestimate the patterns of brokenness, and also the way we attribute to them a power over us they really mm-hmm. don't have. Love is the only authority, but the patterns with which we're subject to self-deception mm-hmm. and act out those self-deceptions on ourselves on each other run mm-hmm. deep. And so uh, I'm thinking this now as a therapist, like in-depth therapy work mm-hmm. is like, and, and how does the society, uh, Socrates, you know, the unexamined life is not worth living. The, how do I look at myself in the light of this mm-hmm. with, with courage and honesty and patience and like that? Yeah. Um, she talks about in ma- mention one that the dwelling is actually bright, but the soul cannot appreciate it. Uh, and I just wanted, I know um, when I was learning Teresa from you the first time, Jim, I won't be able to say it in your exact words, but there was something you said where um, the light, the brightest light from the very center filters out through the soul and draws draws it, draws it us toward itself, even while we cannot see it. And so I feel like she's trying to give us... Um, yes, let, let, let's say... In this, as we approach the sixth and seventh mansion, let's say we're at the. We've we're, she's guiding us toward this point. Let's say that our, our life, everyone, everything around us, has become transparent to the divine light. See? You know, it's the transparency of the divine light of filling all things and the light of God filling all things. But what we're working through are, are gradients of internalized. Um, processes and attitudes that, that render it render us op- first opaque to that when we don't even have a soul, but then in which it, it shines through dimly because it's shining through the fabric of these internalized mm-hmm. patterns. So every mansion draws closer and closer. I have the image of of an artist using watercolors, and they can start out very dense, but as they keep adding water. To the watercolor, it can get to a certain point, say where the sky fades, you can barely discern the blue, it just becomes almost like water. See? So everything becomes divine, it's the transparency. So we're working through layers of opacity or density to come to this ever deeper, that's, that, that kind of imagery helps me to see that, yeah. And here's another way to put it too, I wanna to say another way. Let's say, uh, that we're upset with somebody. Say a, a parent's upset with one of their children about something, or we're upset, we're in an intimate relationship and we're upset with the person. And we're so upset with them because we've always assumed not just what they did was wrong, which maybe it was, but we also kind of assume we know why they did it. And our anger about what they did closes off our access to see them. And then in a moment, they come to us and they admit what they did. But not only do they admit it, they get very vulnerable and share something about themselves that motivated that withholding of love or that anger. And all of a sudden, 
in the, in the transparency of their self-disclosure, you're able to see a light shining mm. out of them that was previously hidden from you. Like seeing in the, you know what I mean? It's a layering of, of seeing. And I think a lot of life is that mm -hmm. way. A lot of the function of art has that function too. I think we gaze upon it or we ponder it. And layers and layers of, of previous assumptions give way to deeper realization gravitating towards a kind of a oneness with something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. I wanted to share that when I read her, I feel a lot of encouragement. I feel, feel like she continues to encourage us uh, along the path and for, for people to feel encouraged in uh, listening to the Lexio. Yes, I'm convinced. I'm saying this because of my experience with Merton. I think if we could really sit with her in spiritual direction where she would just listen while we talked, I think we would feel we were not just in the presence of a very present person, a very godly person. We would sit in the presence of a very accepting person, you know, who knew well about human brokenness and limitations and that she was listening to us in a way that she could see in us something, which is the very thing she's trying to help us find. And she'd be endlessly uh, encouraging, like, don't be disheartened, you know, yeah, don't be disheartened. You'll always kind of start over again, over and over again, and with renewed hope and and uh, learn the lessons that you're learning in your stumbling places and compare where you are now where you used to be. Something's happening, you know, where you're on a journey. I'm, I'm convinced that's yeah, mm -hmm. true. Beautiful, Jim. Thank you. She does state towards the end of the first mention, true perfection means loving God and loving our neighbor. And, and we did talk, talk about that earlier, about the measure of the path is yeah. love. Yeah, and, and by the way, this will come up later again mm -hmm. too in the fourth mansion to the whole book, really. Is that the, the love is being in love with the infinite love that's infinitely in love with us and is transforming us along this path. Mm -hmm. But as we're transformed by it, it isn't just that it's radicalized how much in love, infinite love is in love with us, but it empowers us to love in ways that are beyond anything we ever mm -hmm. knew is possible. Us. We never even knew it was possible to love like mm -hmm. that, and so there's a kind of an uh, of an existential transformation of the very substance of ourself, habituated. And then the first commandment is love, to, and the second is to love your neighbor as yourself, because the measure of this, the authenticity of it. How can we claim we love God who we don't see if we don't love our brother and sister whom we see? The measure of it is how we treat the people other people that we live she always makes that statement and i like also she says sisters we have to be very careful we don't see this in global terms like the cartoon peanuts you know i love humanity it's people i can't stand <laughs> and, and so we, we love humanity but we're resentful and bitter and mean-spirited toward the people we mm -hmm. live with she said it's always in the concreteness of the relationship and the and the um, the, the, the people were called to be real with and set boundaries with and accept mm -hmm. and because that's where the transformation happens mm -hmm. yeah with people yeah well i've loved being with you jim and i've loved learning more about mansion one so yes. uh, i think this has been incredibly helpful and uh i can't imagine anything better to talk about <laughs> yes and and i want to say also i'm glad we're doing this because I, when I said, when I'm sharing this over and over with people for a long time, these really are the kinds of questions people ask. You know, these are exactly the kind of things. So I hope that the listeners find our dialogue helpful here by this. So anyway, thanks for the questions. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Center for Action and Contemplation. Please consider rating it, writing a review, or sharing it with a friend who might be interested in learning and practicing with this online community. To learn more about the work of James Finley, please visit jamesfinley.org. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. 
Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.